Welcome back to Saltier Politics of week 2 million in isolation. It seems to be that you were the epicenter, now I am. Yes, Emily, you fled New York to go to Florida to be safe because the president assured all of us that in warm weather, this virus does not spread. And False. now um, Florida, of course, otherwise known as Siberia in June, um, seems to be an epicenter. You, um, Texas, Arizona, all really cold states, because with the warm weather, I thought this was all going to diminish. So, so I don't really understand why all these states that are really hot are not listening to the president's directive to stop having the coronavirus. I guess when you're bored of something, it just doesn't go away. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, we have a little special guest on today. My little eight-year-old is uh, sitting here and wanted to join us because I think he heard about me talking about remote learning. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think he heard me talking about how it was not that easy for us to do remote learning together. Is that right? Yeah. Did you like it? Did you like being homeschooled by your mom? Not really. No. Who's harsher? Who's a tougher teacher? Me or your teachers in school? Yeah. How come? You're more bossier. I'm more bossier. I'm bossier because why? Because I corrected every single grammar mistake ever. Because yeah. I made sure that you spelled everything 100% right and wouldn't let you leave the room until you did it properly, even if I'm not doing it 20 times. Yeah. Would you really want to be homeschooled by me for the rest of your life? No. Are you super excited to go? That was, that was a hard no. That was a hard no. Are you super excited to go back to school in September so you don't have to ever deal with me again? Yeah. Yeah. What was good about being homeschooled? What was good about being at home with me for three and a half long, long months? Um, Are you struggling to come up with an answer? It's got to be something. Like what? Well, I saw that you made bread and butter. Can you tell me how you did that? A shrub. It looked amazing. What'd you do? Did you take some flour? Yeah. What else? And I made dough. You made dough. And then what'd you do with the dough? Put in the flour. No, flour was the dough. What did you do? You put it in the fridge, right? Yeah. To, to wait for the yeast to rise? Mm-hmm. And then what did you do after that? You took it out of the fridge. And then? I ate it. You ate it raw? Did you put it in the oven, silly? Oh, yeah, I put it in the oven. This is what I mean, Emily. The atrophying of the brain has began, began four months ago and is now completed despite all my efforts. I mean, so far, he's my favorite guest. So. I gotta say, you're doing a pretty good job. Anything else you want to add about being homeschooled by me? No? You know, nobody can see you shaking your head. You want to say something? What have you been doing to occupy your time now that school is over? Playing playing what, Roblox? Yeah. Can you explain Roblox to me? Because I don't get it. I don't know. It's one video game, and there's tiny video games inside the video game. And do you play against your friends? Uh, yeah. Cool. Are you looking forward to summer camp this year, if it ever happens? Mm-hmm. What are you looking forward to the most? Sports. What kind of sports? The team I'm going to be on. Oh, team sports? Yeah. Um, are you excited about going back to soccer in the fall if you can? Yeah. What's your favorite soccer position that you played? Striker. Striker. Okay. All right. We're going to let you set you free. Go back to doing whatever you've been doing. And uh, let me just say that this was uh, by far the most reluctant guest we've ever had on. He just happened to be in the room. And so I decided to drag him in here. A glimpse into remote learning. As you can tell, he had no desire whatsoever to be a part of this podcast. What's going on in Florida? Is it bad? I mean, are people still out and about? Well, Julie, I have still gone to workout classes every morning, which is surprising that that, those are still happening. Uh, What are you doing? Are you not worried about getting sick? Like, what are you doing? Well, before the classes, they take your temperature. That means nothing. I I had the coronavirus. Right. I never had a high fever. Ever. I mean, I'm wearing masks wherever I go. That's about it. But yeah. I would say 80% of people are wearing masks. Well, that's pretty good. 80% is not bad. I think, though, like in two weeks after the, the directive that everyone has to wear masks, we'll start to see stuff go down. Oh, so you guys do have a directive where everybody has to wear masks. Well, certain that- counties, like Orange County. I live in Orange. Right. But not, but not statewide. No. That's interesting because... Um, the president has basically all but said, or he did say, I don't know the exact quote, but something along the lines of people are wearing masks to protest him. So do you think that people are in Florida, or some people in Florida refuse to wear masks because they see it as a diss of Donald Trump? 
I think they see it as it's some, they're not being affected firsthand and they're now inconvenienced and do not like having to think about someone else other than themselves because, again, it is not affecting them. Well, it will affect. I mean, take it. I feel like I'm here from the future to tell people in Florida and Texas, the Carolinas, Oklahoma, where the president had his rally, his poorly attended rally, that it will affect you. I mean, virtually everybody in New York was affected either directly like me or knew somebody who was affected or knew somebody who died. I mean, not even affected in terms of illness, but it's it was pretty bad down here up here, I should say. We did the right thing, I think. I don't think Cuomo did everything right. I think, in fact, he did a lot more wrong than people realize. But for the most part, he shut it down, and he shut it down pretty unequivocally until things started to diminish. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of protest going on on the Republican side about the fact that, well, you know, everybody shutting everything down until the Black Lives Matter marches started, and then... Nobody cared about social distancing and nobody cared about masks. I went to one of those protests. Everybody was wearing a mask, first and foremost. I really did not see anybody not wearing a mask. Secondly, it turns out it's really hard to transmit this stuff when you're outside and they haven't seen any spikes yet. Now, it was, you know, it's only been a couple of weeks, but really many spikes from those marches um, because they all took place outside and people were not on top of each other. People for the most part that I at least saw were, were socially distancing themselves. It's the part where people are sitting indoors, either with masks or without masks, and especially in places like Florida with air conditioning, which is circulating and recirculating. And that's what ends up happening. Right. Well, how about let's talk about Jeffrey Berman's ouster. Let's, let's have a hot take on that one, Julie. (laughs) The justice department has entirely abdicated any independence. Um, I hope, this is what I'm going to say, and I really mean this. I really, really mean this. I think it is very much against the nature of, of, of Joe Biden to, to do what I'm suggesting he do. However, Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon, um, and there was really no accounting for Watergate because of his actions. Um, I know there's going to be a push if Biden wins for national healing and reconciliation and unity and uh, kumbaya, and we have to move past this divisive time in our history. I will just say this. Uh, There is no such thing as kumbaya with the Republican Party as it is today. Trumpism, to me, is the apothesis of what's been happening for the last 20 years, really since Newt Gingrich. If you remember, we had Steve Kornacki on the pod ages ago. He wrote this wonderful story, uh, book, excuse me, not a story, but a wonderful book about the 1990s and really where this, this horrible rift began and the transformation of the Republican Party. And, and he's absolutely right. Since Newt Gingrich, if not earlier, there really has not been any coming to terms with the Republican Party. And when you have people like Susan Collins uh, and others who you thought were moderates and you thought were able to work across the aisle. Lindsey Graham is actually the perfect example. Now suddenly become these rabid attack dogs and defenders of what they know is completely antithetical to the American experiment, completely antithetical to our constitution, completely antithetical to the values that we as a nation, not as a party, but as a nation. It just says to me that there's no coming to terms with them. And so there must be account, because if you don't bring these people to account, it will happen again, and it will happen again and again. And so I really hope that, uh, and this is not him launching an investigation into his you know, political enemies the way Donald Trump wants to do with Hillary Clinton, or has done with Hillary Clinton. I truly hope that there is a reckoning for these people, and I hope it is done through the justice system. And so that William Barr, I believe, needs to be investigated by the next attorney general. And Donald Trump needs to be investigated. And this is not some sort of situation where in third world countries, people come to power and start investigating their political opponents and their predecessors. This is a blow, and and Berman is just another example. This is a blow against what we stand for as a nation. It's a blow against the independence of the judiciary, the independence of, look at the Michael Flynn situation. Well, exactly what you said about Lindsey Graham. His response to Flynn was justice, justice, finally, justice served. And it's 
and, and let me tell you something. Lindsey Graham will be the first to be screaming, 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 screaming if uh, suddenly somebody starts looking into William Barr. Well, actually, I don't know about that. Because if Joe Biden wins, I guarantee you, Lindsey Graham, this is what I believe about Lindsey Graham, and every Republican in South Carolina should be aware of this. Lindsey Graham is the most situational human being in the world because Lindsey Graham has no life outside of being a senator. This is entirely what he has done his entire career has been. I don't think he's ever worked in the private sector. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, I know that he was in the Air Force JAG or the Army JAG. He was a JAG officer. But Lindsey Graham has been a career politician. So Lindsey Graham's entire life has been to be an elected career politician for the most part. And if Lindsey Graham wins this election and Donald Trump loses, Lindsey Graham will never think about Donald Trump again. He is using Trump to get reelected. And Lindsey Graham loves the fact that the president of the United States takes his phone calls. Well, if that guy's not the president of the United States anymore and he doesn't have to worry about getting reelected again um, for six years, he won't care about Trump. So I don't know if Lindsey Graham will be screaming about it. But people like Lindsey Graham really should be ashamed of themselves. They know better. They really do. Right. Uh, Susan Collins knows better. I mean, I worked in the Senate. I've been around these people. They know better. Um, and they're completely subverting every value they have. They're subverting their patriotism, really, to getting reelected. And that's obscene. I have much more respect for people that say, you know what, I'm just going to go do something else because I can't go along with this president anymore. Um, by the way, uh, Donald Trump just lost his first primary. Oh, in North Carolina? Yeah, he endorsed, yes, he endorsed somebody. And that person lost. His, his record of uh, being untouchable in Republican primaries are over. And, and not just lost. I mean, I think lost pretty big to some 20... A man who's no, not even yet old enough to be a congressman, he will be by the time Election Day rolls around. And he gets sworn in in January if he wins the general election, which it sounds like he will. But um, yes, he came out very, very strongly for a woman who was running against a 24-year-old, and the 24-year-old beat her. That's a pretty so, big rebuke. It's a big rebuke. It's a special election. Um, so look, and anybody who says, well... That guy was also a big Trump supporter. He was, but Trump did not support him. Trump supported his opponent, and the woman lost. Listen, uh, something is happening where Trump is losing the support of even those people who stuck with him until now. It's like the emperor has no clothes and people are finally starting to see it. And I, what frustrated me about that rally in Tulsa, I mean, many things frustrated me, the racism, the insane self-regard, the focus on himself and his water drinking and his ramp walking and not on the 120,000 dead Americans, more than any war since World War II combined. Um, what also bothered me is that the reason the arena was empty, people thought, was because a bunch of K-pop stars, whatever K-pop is, maybe you can explain it to me, and a bunch of high school kids apparently hijacked the tickets and everybody said and patted them on the back and said, oh, look, they hijacked the tickets. Um, and so that's why the arena was half empty or a third empty. Um, that's not the reason it was empty. The reason it was empty was because the Trump campaign is inept and, <laughs> and you figure out how not to get hijacked. Um, and there was also a huge overflow space where both Trump and Pence were supposed to speak that nobody showed up to. I mean, like one or two people showed up, so they scrapped that. That's not a bunch of teenagers and K-pop stars. That is that people no longer trust the president, even his supporters, to be in a crowded room and a crowded um, arena um, during a time of coronavirus. And the reason that's so striking to me is because they trust him in everything else. I mean, he was not wrong. If he walked down, killed somebody in Fifth Avenue, they would be with him. But they don't trust him enough to put their life in danger. And... They don't trust him enough to show up. And so that's really not even on his campaign. I think that's really, it's an interesting dynamic to me because there is a, there is a line that they're starting to draw. And it may not be that they're going to vote for Joe Biden. A lot of them will never vote for a Democrat. It may just be that they're not going to vote. I mean, I'm not suggesting he, he has a rabid base. I mean, there are people who literally would think he's, you know, the second coming of Jesus Christ, literally. 
Um, but it shows that they're not going to put their health on the line. Like if there are long voting lines, they may not show up if they yeah. if coronavirus is still there. Yeah. And by the way, with vote by mail, I'll tell you where I think Trump is making a mistake by opposing vote by mail. Um, yes, it hurts minority um, people in the minority communities. It certainly does. It also hurts seniors because I can guarantee you seniors who are leaving Trump, but still um, are what he considers a part of his base. If coronavirus ticks up again this fall, which Dr. Fauci and others predict it will, or continues to, to spread as it does in you know Florida, where seniors live, Arizona, they're not really going to be driving to the polls to go vote. They're just not. Right. It's an interesting dynamic. Things are starting to shift in ways. And everybody said this about Trump four years ago. He's not going to win because of the polls, because of this, because of that. Something's going on, though, that are beyond that, that that's beyond polling. Um, his base seems to start starting to distrust him to some extent. Well, it's also when you start to get sick or see a family member actually sick and in a virus really hurting and impacting them firsthand. There's it's not fake. You can't you can't lie it away. Yeah, it's pretty insane. Um, okay, so what I also wanted to talk about is Mary Trump's upcoming book, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man, uh, in the subject of NDAs. So Trump's brother is trying to stop her from publishing it with Simon & Schuster, saying it violated a 2001 NDA agreement that she signed. Let's go, Julie. Oh, I don't know what she signed, and obviously she signed what she signed. I haven't seen the NDA. But this is another example about NDAs. Does she have any proprietary information that would adversely impact the Trump business model, for example? So if she knew the secret formula to how Donald Trump slaps together cheap buildings um, and puts his name on them, then she probably shouldn't talk about it if there is such a secret formula. But if she wants to talk about toxicity um, or she wants to talk about her own life experience, that's different. I mean, nobody should be silenced from talking about their life. And yes, I get that she signed the NDA. I get it. However, times have changed. Um, it used to be that people signed covenants not allowing people who are Jewish or black to move in next door to them. That's not legal anymore. So times change. Right. And mores change and society has changed. And the muzzling of women from discussing their life story should change. I mean, it really should change because people no longer, you, you have the right to tell your life story. I mean, if you say something that's libelous or defamatory, by all means, I mean, then, then game on. I mean, I, you know, look, I can't say if I were to, I don't know, I can't say that you have 20 bodies buried in your backyard right. because that's, that's obviously defamatory. I mean, I should not ever be able to say something like that about you and you should have recourse to sue me if I do. But, um, but why would you prevent somebody from talking about their life and their experience with somebody? I think it has to do with what touches Donald Trump closest to home is his money because I believe it has to do with Fred Trump, the NDA, and the death of uh, Trump's father. And a lot, what was left to this, to the children. Yes. And no I question. think, yeah. No and I don't question. think, I don't think he wants people to know how much he got and how much he probably squandered in the meantime. Well, and look, she obviously was the source for the tax returns that were leaked. Um, I think she's admitted to that now. Um, so she probably has more where that came from. And we all know the last thing he wants is his tax returns made public because he's the first president in modern history who has not made his tax returns public. Um, which makes, again, if, if you're a Trump supporter, aren't you the least bit curious as to why? Like, what are you hiding? Right. What is it that he's hiding? Like, why don't you want to know what the president of the United States is hiding? Why don't you want to know who's got the goods on the president? And it brings maybe, maybe she's able to talk about how much the Russians have supported the Trump organization over these decades. Because, as you recall, one of Trump's sons said that the Russians are a huge uh, base, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but a huge base of their financial well-being. I mean, he said that years ago. 
Um, uh, don't you want to know that? I mean, don't you want to know who owes Donald Trump and who owns Donald Trump, potentially? Mm-hmm. Um, again, I go back to this. You know, when I was on Fox, and I remember uh, there was a conversation about Tesla. Maybe it wasn't even about Tesla. Maybe it was about Elon Musk. Um, and it was on The Five many, many, many years ago. Tesla had been a client of mine very briefly uh, for a period of time before that conversation took place. And I still felt that it was my ethical responsibility. Nobody told me to do it, but I felt it was my ethical responsibility to say, hey, I'm going to tell you what I think about whatever the issue was. I can't remember what it was to do with either Tesla or Elon Musk himself. But I want to say that not now, but back, you know, X number of months, years, whenever it was ago, at one point I got a paycheck, not a paycheck. At one point I got a retainer from Tesla. I got paid by Tesla for a short period of time to do some work on, on some project that they wanted me to do work on. Um, I, of course, people should know that before I opine on Tesla. And that's me doing a opinion show, which does not move markets, which does not affect Tesla's business model whatsoever, nothing. I still felt it was my ethical responsibility to talk about it. Anytime we've talked about any of my clients here, I mean, when we talked about the presidential campaign, um, I've always said, yes, one of the presidential candidates, Cory Booker, at one point, not when we were talking about him as the president, but at one point when he ran for Senate, was my client. It's been six years since that was the case. But I still felt that I had to disclose it. Um, I don't understand how, and that's on a podcast, this guy is the president of the United States. He's truly the most powerful man in the world. And we still don't know where he gets his money, how he spends his money, who funds him, who loans money to him, none of it. And he's now trying to gag effectively a family member who may want to shed some light on that. Again, I don't care if you're a diehard Trump supporter. You could think that Donald Trump is the greatest president, if not in modern history, in the history of the republic. And you should still want to know the answers to these questions. Why would you want to know? I mean, why would you not want to know? I, I truly want to know. Like, I want to know how Joe Biden's been making his money since he's been out of office. And Joe Biden's been transparent with that. And if he weren't, I'd be slamming him for it. Perhaps ignorance is bliss, but it's a very it's dumb a, ignorance. It's, but it's not an ignorance, it's a cult. Right. It's a cult mindset. Right. It's just complete lack of critical thinking. I, I, that's the part that I don't understand. I mean, don't you want to know what Mary Trump has to say? Maybe Mary Trump's unhinged. I've never, I have no, right. I've never, like, honestly, I have never, I, I never even knew Mary Trump existed until a few weeks ago. True. And, and honestly, all of the pushback that he's giving to this is doing, I believe, probably better for the book. Like with Bolton, I think probably sales went up a ton. Of and course. If, so and, I, I think they're doing the publishers a favor. They're like, great, bring this on. And same thing with John Bolton. I mean, John Bolton, uh, again, another great example, right? I think John Bolton, when John Bolton was appointed, I think I tweeted out something like, this is the most dangerous appointment that Trump could have made. I, I'm wrong about that. Bill Barr is the most dangerous appointment Trump made. But I was not thrilled about John Bolton being um, the national security advisor. And I know John Bolton. I mean, from my Fox days. I know, you know, fairly, I, we're not buddies, but I mean, we certainly spent enough time in the green room together and on shows together where I got to know him. Um, I don't think I agree with anything John Bolton stands for. I mean, I really don't, for the most part. But I will say, why wouldn't you want to hear what John Bolton has? Why wouldn't you want to hear what anybody has to say, assuming it's not a violation of national security or it's not a violation of um, some sort of trade information? I keep saying the secret formula to Coca-Cola. There is a time and a place for, for NDAs. I mean, I, I get it. I'll give you a great example. I, I'll give you the perfect example. Um, I signed an NDA for Governor Phil Murphy um, it was not called an NDA. It was part of my contract. It was a confidentiality provision in the contract. Um, a Democrat. I worked for him for nearly four years. Um, it's part of my employment agreement. And it was a very broad NDA, which I didn't realize at the time because I wasn't really that focused on NDAs back in 20, whatever it was, well before I, I started really focusing on this issue. There is a lot under that NDA that, NDA that is absolutely right. Um, I have access to self-research on, on Phil Murphy. 
there's no way in hell I should ever be able to turn that self-research over to anybody. Of course. I mean, that is proprietary information. I have access to all strategic information. Um, I should never be able to turn that over. Um, there is polling information that I had access to at the time. I should never be able to turn that over to anybody. I mean, that kind of stuff, there is a place. I'm not suggesting no NDAs, no how, no way ever. There is a place for those NDAs. And I never have, and I never would, and I never will. Um, I take that very seriously, the confidentiality provisions of that very seriously. Where this NDA went off the rails and was very broad is I couldn't talk about the toxic work environment that I experienced on that campaign and that I witnessed other people experiencing. And that's what I think the difference is between John Bolton and Mary Trump and me and the one third of American workers who are bound by NDAs and people who are bound by NDAs for very specific purposes. Again, if I know the secret formula to Coca-Cola, I should not be able to share it with Pepsi. If I'm being sexually harassed um, or racially discriminated against, or just maligned on a daily basis by an executive at Coca-Cola, that should not be bound by NDAs. There's a difference there, right? Um, and that's where I think people like Trump missed the mark. There's probably some stuff that Mary Trump knows that that is proprietary. Uh, maybe she doesn't, I don't know. I mean, she probably, she hasn't, she's never been a part of the Trump organization. Um, that is proprietary business information. If this ain't it. Her talking about her experience with her uncle ain't it. Agreed. Um, that's the part that frustrates me. Absolutely. And even, I don't know if you saw a Colbert interview with Bolton, but he made the point where Bolton was like, you know, they have these choices between Trump and Hillary or Trump and Biden. How could you vote for them? And then Colbert was like, well, you can't argue that Hillary or Biden is worse th than someone who is actually giving away American interests to to leaders like Xi Jinping or Putin. So Xi Jinping, the problem with Xi Jinping is that he is not Xi Jinping. The problem with Trump and Xi Jinping is that he can go ahead and call it the Kung flu, which is a totally racist term, which uh, we have seen a rise of uh, anti-Asian bias, especially in the early days of the virus, because Trump was just making it all about the China hoax and, you know, the Kung flu and, and you know, anyway, I have friends who are of Asian descent, who are as American as uh, Donald Trump, who experienced a tremendous amount of bias just going out for a run because of, of the rhetoric coming out of some quarters. But it's one thing to be um, thinking that you're tough on China because you're engaging in racial anti-Asian language. Um, it is a whole different thing to actually be tough on China. And the reality is he wasn't, as it turned out, he wanted, begged Xi Jinping to intervene in the American election, according to Bolton, and ask him to buy, we talked about this last week, ask him to buy soybeans from American farmers because the farm base was important to his reelection in 2020. I mean, he's literally begging the premier of China, one of our strategic adversaries, to help him out. Uh, it's 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 striking. That's the kind of thing people need to know. Now, you may say John Bolton's a liar. I don't think he is, by the way. He's many things. I'm not a huge fan of his. I don't think John Bolton's a liar. Um, but you may say John Bolton's a liar. You may say that he has no credibility. That's fine. But that's up to you. You should make your own decision. Right? Um, and if, if he's I such a liar, it shows bad judgment call on Trump for putting all these people who are so-called liars in his cabinet. Everybody's a liar, right? Everybody's a liar. This guy must have had more liars that he hired. And, you know, his, his statement about Bolton, you know, Bolton was, you know, he's unhinged. He was crazy. You know, he loved the Iraq war. He started the Iraq war. I bailed him out. I saved him, you know, by hiring him. Like, it was a pity hire. He thought the guy was a horrible um, advisor because he, he was one of the architects of the Iraq war. But you hired him, what, out of pity? As a favor to whom? Like, that's what, I mean, none of it makes sense. None of it makes sense. But... Even if you think John Bolton's a liar, let the guy speak and then judge him for yourself. Right. This constant drive to lie is just absurd. Agreed. Well, yeah. all right. So another, this is completely unrelated, but a different topic that I thought was really interesting. I read this article in Science Magazine, this research that just came out um, about the gender gap in STEM. 
And what it's saying is let's ignore the top performing 90% or the top 10% of like the high achieving women uh, and girls in school, but let's focus on the middle of the road, uh, lower achieving women. But so the art or what this found, what this study found is the role models for girls in STEM are too smart. Whereas, whereas young men and boys who aren't who aren't high achieving or middle of the road smart have similar role models who are about as smart in STEM. So it's taking away and girls are no longer wanting to go into science because they don't have they don't see female role models who are like themselves. And I, I just thought that was really interesting because for the high achieving Girls, the, the programs like Girls Who Code, stuff like that, that's working and helping to close a gap. But for the lower and middle of the road achieving girls, it's not helping. And they didn't really give an answer. But I just, I just thought it was interesting. You're not seeing a role model who's kind of at your level. So it's, I guess, you're not wanting. What do you think of that? So it's interesting that you say that. Um, I'm, I'm the only child and therefore only daughter of a very scientifically minded father. And um, from a very young age, my father would sit there and make me do, and I, I would fight it and I would hate it. I mean, I literally get a stomach ache every night thinking about it when I was little, but he would make me do very advanced math for my age. Um, I think almost from, from the age of five on. And so I was, uh, I don't know if I was gifted at math necessarily, but I was very um, good at math, because, largely because of my father. Um, and then somewhere around fourth or fifth grade, which is where I think it tends to start happening, I decided that I wasn't good at math anymore. And I kind of stopped, stopped. And by the time that I graduated high school, I was really not good at math. I mean, math was not my strong suit. And then I had a math requirement in college, which I aced, ironically enough, which was strange, um, like aced to the point of tutoring other kids in it. Um, so what I, and in science as well, I, I remember I tutored other kids in science too. Science was not my strong suit either um, at all as a, as a high school kid. And so uh, this is a complete, you know, <laughs> this is a focus group of one, just based on my own experience, it certainly doesn't apply. I will say this in my growing up in the eighties um, and going to school in the eighties, what I, what I found was the expectation for girls was not as high as for boys. What I will say is uh, many, 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 many of the girls who I graduated with from high school um, became doctors. One of whom we had on the podcast, Haley Cohen, Dr. Haley Cohen. Um, but so many more. I mean, my class just produced in high school, um, produced, it turns out, a tremendous number of doctors, both both men and women. Um, but there is something to be said for the expectation when I was growing up that uh, science, math, or just girls are so good at it. Like, remember Barbie? This is probably predating you. In fact, this is where our age difference is actually going to show. Um, I think, Emily, right around when you were born, <laughs> uh, about 30 years ago, there was a Barbie that came out. And it was the typical Barbie who looked kind of like Barbie does, which is a completely unrealistic view of uh, the female body. I mean, the, the completely disproportionate tiny waist, the huge boobs, the you know big blonde hair. Six um, feet of legs. Six feet of legs. Like nothing about Barbie could be replicated. Even Kim Kardashian, who I think has nothing left in her body that is made by nature, still cannot quite replicate Barbie. Um, but... There was a Barbie, and it was called Math Barbie or something. I forgot the name of the Barbie, but if you pushed the button, it would say she would say, "Math is hard." Oh God! Oh gosh! Yeah, this was I think when I was in college. I mean, this was like I, I want to say sometime in the '90s, like maybe very early '90s. I can't remember. Um, and it, I think that went off the shelves very quickly because I think a lot of people were up in arms. But think about the fact that somebody at Mattel or Hasbro, whoever makes Barbie or made Barbie at the time thought that this was a good idea. And enough people thought it was a good idea that it went through what I assume is focus grouping and test, you know, product testing, manufacturing, and it got onto the shelves. I mean, this is not like a decision where I decide to, you know, make a doll out of clay one day and, and, and tape a sign to her forehead that says math is hard. Like this is an entire massive corporation using what is probably their biggest brand 
to tell girls, math is hard. And like, think about who that was marketed to, who plays with Barbies. Little girls were the same age that I was when I was really good at math. Um, and I, again, I was good at math because I was, I had no choice. I had to, it was literally, literally crammed down my throat by my father, um, who would probably take offense of that term, but that's how I felt about it at the time. Um, and I wonder if, and, and again, I don't think I was particularly gifted at math or science for that matter at all. In fact, I, I don't think I was, but what I think was, I think I had no choice. And that's what I, and so that's a very, very long way of getting to the point of what I'm trying to say, which is that we tend to teach to either the smartest kids or the kids with the most challenges, right? There are special ed teachers for kids who have really serious challenges or even not special ed, remedial education for kids who need remedial help with writing or math or reading or you know whatever, not even special education, kids who are just struggling in any particular subject, schools, good public schools, and not even that good public schools and certainly private schools um, help those kids. There are, and then there are the kids who are the 0.01%, the very top of their class, who go to all, you know, win all the awards and sort of are the pride of the school. And so everybody focuses on them as well. But the vast majority of children out there, and I don't know what the percentage is, but I have to believe it's somewhere like the 90% that remain, are kids who are middle of the road and not because they're average. I understand 90% is not middle of the road. Um, but it's just kids who either need an extra push or they need um, somebody to just tell them they have no choice, they have to do this, um, and not just do the assignment, but go above and beyond the way that I was forced to um, for math. And I don't think that's happening, and no wonder, because if you are coming up with a predicate that math is hard, or that girls aren't good at science or STEM, then people just say, well, just, just get through it, you have a science requirement, you have a math requirement, like you gotta get through algebra one, you gotta get through you know, chemistry in school, just get through it. Um, and, but there is a bias there about, about that. Right, I mean, and, and the whole idea of, of low performing men and boys seeing similarly low performing, but they're in science fields, they're doing, they're in the classes, but girls don't have that. So it, the only ones who are really in those like AP Chem in those classes are the extremely high performing girls. So it's like you're not seeing yourself. This is just, this is not just a function of science. It is true in every field that I've ever been in that mediocre men have to, women have to work twice as hard as men to get to the top. In politics, I see it. On campaigns, I see it all the time. And you see it on TV. I mean, let's be honest. A woman has to be attractive, for the most part, to be on TV, whereas a man could be half dead. And it's interesting sometimes how they pair attractive women with half dead men. Right. Um, not always. I mean, not every network. Not always. But there was a lot more pressure to visual medium. Um, and you just have to work harder. I mean, you have to work harder. Men don't have to, I mean, think about the hair and makeup for, for women in TV versus men, right? No matter how attractive and beautiful a TV anchor was in my experience, uh, it took an hour start to finish to get it done. For men, they'd show up, they'd get a little powder, they'd be on air, they'd be back to work 30 seconds later. And, um, and it's not, you know, it's not just that. It's not just about looks. It's about work ethic. It's about everything else. You just have to prove yourself. Um, the barriers are just higher for women. And I, and this is a not, this is not a partisan issue. It's that case on Republican campaigns. I assume I've never worked on one. It is definitely the case on Democratic campaigns. I mean, the level of passive misogyny that is not even acknowledged, I think. I think it's just kind of there. It's huge. And then add to that if you're a woman of color. Add to that if you're a woman of color who's LGBT, some of whom I know. Right. Then you just become the person that everybody says, oh, you know, let's hire her because she checks every box, but not give her any real responsibility, even if she's the most talented person in the room. STEM seems to be the... There's two things here. STEM seems to be the future um, professionally. 
although I'm still a humongous and I'm a humongous proponent of a good liberal arts education. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still the person that believes everybody should take Latin, even though it's a totally dead language because it's so useful in every other facet of your life. Um, reading. Yeah. I'm still the person. Yeah. I mean, I'm still the person who believes that you should, everybody should read the Republic by Plato, even though it doesn't really have any bearing on your earning potential, I guess. Um, I'm still the person who believes that the arts are important, even though you're not going to, unless you're in the 0.01%, you're not going to make a living as a, as an artist or a poet or a singer or whatever. Um, so I'm a huge proponent in the liberal arts education, but STEM is certainly seems to be where things are trending and it's got to be something that is accessible to both genders. It just has to be. I agree. All right. So what is making you salty this week? You know, I'm not really that salty this week. I've got to be honest with you. Um, I mean, obviously you talk the run of the mill. (laughs) I mean, Berman, Berman set me off the edge. I mean, that's just, it's such a disgusting blow. And let me just say this about Jeffrey Berman. I guess that is that, that did make me quite salty um, earlier this week. Jeffrey Berman was a Trump donor. Jeffrey Berman was a former partner of Rudy Giuliani. This is not some deep state hack. And Jeffrey Berman, as you recall, replaced United States Attorney whom Pre uh, Brara, who who Trump did fire. Now, there's a big difference, and people have to understand this. When a president comes into office, he typically gets the resignation of and the prerogative to replace United States attorneys um, who were appointed by his predecessor. So that I didn't blame Trump whatsoever for replacing the Obama. U.S. attorney appointees. That's a huge political plum. It just is. It's a political appointment. You have to be confirmed by the Senate. Um, you serve at the president's pleasure of the president. Um, so there's nothing wrong with the next president, whoever it is after Trump coming in, whether it's you know Joe Biden or if Trump wins his second term, coming in and saying, I'm going to put my own people in as U.S. attorneys. It happens all the time. Happened when Clinton left and Bush became president. Happened when Bush left and Obama became president. Happened when Obama left and Trump became president. No problem. The problem with Berman is that it happened for no reason whatsoever other than Jeffrey Berman was investigating people. I don't know what he was working on, but obviously he had arrested two associates close to Rudy Giuliani. He'd indicted Michael Cohen. Um which got Cohen to really spill his guts. I, I don't know what the Southern District of New York is focused on now, whether it's Russian or who, who knows? I mean, who knows what they're working on? I'll tell you who knows. I mean, William Barr knows. I mean, Justice knows. The Attorney General knows, which is why he obviously fired or tried to fire um, Berman. Right. And not because Berman was inept. Because it turns out that Barr actually offered Berman a promotion to go and run the civil division of the Justice Department. Well, he, he's some deep state actor. Right. Why would you have that? Well, he didn't. It was done to make room for some guy who was at the SEC, who was a Trump supporter, who I assume they thought was going to be more pliant. And by the way, it's exactly what they did in the District of Columbia. They got rid of the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia, and they appointed some guy, his last name is Shea, some patsy. But then, of course, immediately drops the charges against, you know, Flynn and then and, and wants to go easy on Roger Stone and, and does all the bidding that the president wants. I mean, it's such a miscarriage of justice. And again, I said this on Twitter and I'll say it again. This is not a precedent Republicans want to set. If this becomes the norm, then understand what's going to happen. There's going to be selective prosecution of you one day. Right. Which means that. If Joe Biden becomes president, he will say to the U.S. attorney, hey, Emily DeCicio was not so nice to me. So why don't I have Emily investigated? And you're hoping that the U.S. attorney is going to say, Mr. President, that's really inappropriate. You can't do that. I was watching. Do you ever watch Sopranos? 
Oh, yes. I am actually rewatching with my dad. Okay, so I um, just finished rewatching The Sopranos. And um, I remember, I don't know if you've gotten to this part with your dad yet, but I'm not giving away any spoilers since it's been off the air. I've already watched it as okay, well. Right, okay. So if you remember where Adriana Laserva, who's dating Christopher Maltesanti, gets picked up by the cop, by the feds, by the FBI, and she has a meeting with the FBI, and they say to her, we have you dead to rights on, I don't know, I think it was a drug charge, and you're facing five years in prison or whatever it is, um, unless you cooperate. And she said, well, I want to talk to my attorney. And they said something along the lines of, well, you can do that, but then the deal is off, and uh, we're going to put you, you know, and we're going to arrest you right now, put you in wherever jail, you know, whatever holding facility they have in the basement of the New York FBI, which is where I think this took place. Um, and, you know, we'll get around to, you know, call your attorney, he'll show up. But the point is, like, the deal is off. So either you cooperate right now or it's all off. Now, granted, that's not real. That's a TV show. But my understanding is from people who are criminal defense attorneys, that is how it happens. So, yes, you have the right to counsel, but, you know, you want to exercise that right, it's going to be much worse for you. Now, if you're Adriana Laserva and you're some 23-year-old junkie who doesn't really understand how the system works, you're going to plead to whatever you need to plead to to protect yourself at that point. Yeah, because you will be executed without question. I mean, your hesitation. Just, right, which ultimately she was anyway. But the point is, like... It's you against people who do the. It's, it's just the, the might of the government, the Justice Department, is tremendous. Tremendous. I mean, there's a phrase, a very famous phrase, where you can indict a ham sandwich. That's true. You could find something to indict somebody for. And once you're indicted, your life is effectively over. I mean, you, you get indicted, you lose clients, you lose your business. If you're a lawyer, you no longer practically can be with your law firm. I mean, all sorts of things that can happen to you. That's tremendous. And, and, and it has the full weight of the United States government behind it against you, the individual. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's not how it should be. It is the way it is. And we have a pretty, we have a justice system that I think has worked fairly well um, for some people, not all people, people of color, I would think it has not worked that well for. But, uh, but not when it starts being perverted to this extent. Just, you know, the expense alone. I mean, the expense alone of the Justice Department looking into somebody can ruin them financially. I mean, lawyers are not cheap and you have to hire one. The minute, the minute you're called to go talk to the, you know, FBI or the U.S. attorney or whoever, you got to get a lawyer. You've got to have that lawyer spend time. I mean, it's, it's not, as I said, I, I watched this all happen in real time close up with the close friends. So I, so I know what they went through, um, which is not a reflection on that particular case. It's simply just saying what, what happens. And, um, and I think most prosecutors understand that. And yet here is William Barr effectively having two levels of justice, one for people with whom the president is closed and one who isn't. I mean, if they think that Roger Stone got a unreasonable sentence for what he did. Is he the only person in America who got an unreasonable sentence? How often does the attorney general weigh in on unreasonable sentencing? Right? That's true. I mean, think about all the black men who are serving decades in prison for dealing a small amount of drugs. Right. I that's think unreasonable. Are, that's unreasonable. And Where's, why is the attorney general not speaking up for them? Well, because they're not personal friends of the president. That's where it gets awful. That's where it becomes selective and political prosecution, and that's where we become a banana republic. So thank you, Emily, for reminding me. That is exactly what I'm salty about this week and actually every week. It's awful, 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 awful. How about you? Well, I'm salty about yet another unknown history that I just found out about this week. Um, so a new Florida law is bringing more awareness to the victims of the Ocoee massacre in 1920. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Had no idea about it. Um, it's so you just learned about this in your um, Florida history class in middle school or high school. Or wherever absolutely it was. did not. And so what happened is the day before Election Day, 1920, the KKK marched through the streets of two black communities in Ocoee. They had megaphones and yelled that 
No black person would be able to vote, and if any of them dared to do so, there would be dire consequences. Mose Norman uh, would not be so easily deterred and was dedicated to expanding voting access. The response by the Klan was to lynch him and then burn Okoe's black community to the ground, and at least 50 black Floridians were murdered. I think our history books, they don't, especially living in Florida, just but history books in general don't show this kind of deep-seated racism. And it's like, now that it's everything's coming to light, it's just, you're learning it now at, I'm 30. And, and it's like, you could have been learning it by when you were six or seven and learning about this history. So it's more ingrained and understandable. So it's making me very salty that I'm just learning about these things now. Our, our, our system needs to not be so whitewashed. Some people are complaining about the taking down of some of these monuments to Jefferson Davis or to, you know, other Confederate, um, and I use the word heroes in quotes and very cynically and sarcastically, but we have had the Daughters of the Confederacy and others have a consistent reimagining of what historically took place. And it's been popularized in movies, um, and I'll talk about Gone with the Wind. I was obsessed, and I mean obsessed with Gone with the Wind when I was about 13 years old, obsessed to the point where I made my parents, who had no money, save up enough money to take me to Atlanta so that I could go to Stone Mountain and see Stone Mountain, which is the, I don't know if you know about Stone Mountain, it's the Confederate Mount Rushmore. Um, it's right outside Atlanta. So I could go to Atlanta and sort of see, you know, we could go out to a plantation and see what, you know, where Scarlett O'Hara could have potentially lived. Um, and I mean, I was obsessed with that book. Like, I don't think I was obsessed with any other book in my life. It was just, I was the perfect age, right? Like I was 13. I loved the book. I read it. I, I had my, you should see, if you ever go to my parents' house to see a copy of my, my copy of Gone with the Wind, it is literally, dog-eared is not even the word, it's like missing a cover because I read it so much. Um, and then you, so, so think about that. And you think about the movie Gone with the Wind, which is still considered one of the most epic sweeping movies of all time. And I'm completely against people taking it down. It is what it is, it's a movie, you have to understand it in perspective. But when you have that kind of, um, and brainwashing is not the word, but when you have that kind of history taught to you, right? The lost cause, the hagiography of, of, of these statues. If I, I always used to joke when I lived in DC, the minute you cross from DC into Virginia, into Arlington, Virginia, Route One, which is the road that goes all the way from, I believe, Maine down to Florida, becomes known as Jefferson Davis Highway. Like, no problem, Jefferson Davis Highway in the shadow of the United States Capitol. A capital that he opposed, um, a nation that he led his people away from. He was a traitor, not to mention a racist and a, um, uh, you know, this whole thing about states' rights, states' rights, the war was really over states' rights. Well, yeah, states' rights to have slaves, right? Um, the Missouri Compromise, you know, all these things that, that people don't know about, but those were all about this state gets to have slaves, the state doesn't. And then when suddenly somebody said, hey, maybe nobody should have slaves, then it became an issue of states' rights. Well, we should do what we want. And that's not taught in school. I mean, I think about, and I went to school in you know, high school in New Jersey. It's not like I went to high school down in Alabama. When we learned about the Civil War, from what I remember, it was about battles. We went to Gettysburg. Actually, I never yeah. went to Gettysburg, but people went to Gettysburg on school field trips. For some reason, I didn't, I didn't make that field trip. Um, we learned about battles. We learned about strategy. We learned about... Um, it was really about the war, right? The, 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 the war aspect of it, not the causes thereof, not um, the reasons behind, and not what happened after. And I cannot even imagine, it's only occurred to me, you know, I'm 47 years old, it has only occurred to me now in real ways. And this is actually, let me make this point because this is, this is what's been making me salty for like a month. And I have to make this point, and I haven't made it out loud. I've only thought about it in my head. Um, Barack Obama could never lose his temper because as a black man, he knew that uh, it would scare people to have a black man lose his temper, right? Meanwhile, you have Donald Trump, who 
having meltdowns every single day and nobody's getting scared. You know, people, I'm scared about that because <laughs> from a mental perspective. But anyway, the point is the onus, on, especially on black men, to behave a certain ways, it's much different um, than it is on, on white men. Um, there has been, this country has seen 400, more than 400 years of slavery or in, and slash awful treatment of black men and women. They just, it, it just has, I mean, it's just a fact, right? I mean, slavery began in this country in the very early part of the 17th century. Um, we're now in the 21st century. So, black people in this country were first brought here in chains, enslaved, ripped away from their children, right? Sold down the river, away from their children. I mean, you gave birth, you go one place, your kid would go in a different, sold to a different place, you'd never see them again. I mean, really, uh, you know, the way we, we treat animals now, like a, 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 a dog gives birth to a litter, you know, some, some of the litter goes to New Jersey, some of the litter goes to California, some of the litter goes to Florida. Um, same thing with, with human beings. Then after the war, civil war, they proceed to be lynched for so much as, you know, quote unquote, being uppity, which is a phrase that is completely used historically for certain segments of the population, which are African-American. Um, literally not allowed to intermarry until about 19, I mean, Loving versus Virginia was in the 60s. I mean, really not until the 60s were you allowed to marry in some places um, a white man if you were a black woman or vice versa. Um, not a, segregated, beaten, lynched, um, no economic opportunity. And now, whenever there are protests, everybody's screaming if there's a riot. Well, I really haven't seen any riots. I've seen people break sore fronts. I mean, riots to me is, you know, Rodney King was a riot. Um, but let's even assume that there was a riot. Are you kidding me? Like, white people riot every time the Patriots win a Super Bowl. The black community in this country, like, I'm not even black, and I get angry thinking and talking about, I truly do, thinking and talking about what African Americans in this country have gone through. And yet they're expected to stand by quietly as they are racially profiled, as they are shot by police officers at disproportionate rates, as they are subjected to racism that leads to poverty, that leads to economic decline in, 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 in at much higher rates, um, all based on the fact that they happen to be born with a different color of skin than the people who are doing that to them. And we're supposed to believe that racism in this country was cured because a black man got elected for eight years? I mean, it's just, you know, and then the expectation that that black man can't lose his temper, the expectation that that, not just that, but that any black man can't lose his temper, the fact that if a black man, you know, it used to be New York in my lifetime, and I don't know if it still happens, I mean, it's against the law now, but it wasn't for a long time, cabs, you know, Cornell West talks about this, cabs would just drive by and not pick up black men. Right. I mean, here's Cornel West, a professor at Princeton and then at Harvard, and I think back at Princeton again, um, just blown up by cab drivers because, you know, you can't have a black man get in the back of the cab. He's going to kill me. And it's just, you know, never mind the rate of incarceration for black men. And they wonder why so many black women are raising um, children in with no fathers? Well, because the fathers are either incarcerated or their fathers were incarcerated, so they never had a role model of, 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 of you know, what a good family should be. It's just, it's, it's awful and it's infuriating to me, and the part of this that's scary is, I can show that fury, but black people can't, because if they do, some jerk, and I can think of many of them, is gonna be like, oh, oh look at the you know, angry black man, angry black man, it's been ingrained in them. It's been ingrained in them. They're supposed to be quiet and just accept their fate after 400 years of that kind of abuse. Never I'm mind what you said. Never mind what you said, which is their history is not taught. 
their history is not taught. I mean, you went to school in Florida. You went to Brown University. You have you are one of the more educated people I know, not just because of your degrees, but because of your curiosity. And yet you didn't know about this massive event that took place in your own home state. And I bet you it was a huge deal when it happened. But yet two generations later, nobody knows about it. Right. Um, you know, my honestly, my hat is off to the African American African American community in this country because they have more right to be angry than anybody on earth. And yet they have to, they're expected to just grin and bear it. Or or just when they protest to be calm, to ask politely. I mean, think about Martin Luther King and the whole like, you know, peaceful protest while they're being killed on that bridge in Selma, beaten, and they're just supposed to not fight back? How much discipline does that take? I don't think it's in my nature. No, that's a thing. Like, even I I think I haven't gotten pulled over much, but when I do, I'm, please tell me why you're pulling me over and get in the, not in their face, but I'm assertive. And I don't believe black people can be assertive in front of cops and it not escalating. I got pulled over. It's very funny. Let me tell you something. Once you turn about 44, 45, you don't get out of tickets anymore. It's just a fact. And I'm sorry to say it. But I used to get out of tickets all the time. Um, I used to be like Speedy Gonzalez. And I used to literally not be able to get a ticket to save my life. Every time I get pulled over, I, you know, I just wouldn't get a ticket. But that has changed in recent years. But every time I've been pulled over in recent years... Um, and, um, I basically, I am asked, you know, I, I just say to the cop, I'm like, why'd you pull me? And then I kind of get annoyed. I'm like, oh, really? Like I wasn't speeding. Um, and I kind of talk to them ways that are, you know, once I realize they're giving me a ticket, there's no reason to be nice anymore. I kind of start getting a little annoyed with them. If I were black, I don't think I would do that. I mean, think about that. Every black person I know immediately puts their hands. Like, it's never occurred to me whenever a cop comes over and says license, registration, insurance, I lean over, I go into my glove compartment, and I get my license, registration, insurance. It never occurred to me to say, officer, I'm not going to go into my glove compartment to do that. Don't think I have a gun in there because I'm going to shoot you. It just never occurs to me to say that. It never occurs to the cop that that's what I'm going to do. If I were black, if I was especially a black man, from what I understand, from friends that I've spoken to who are, Their attitude is, officer, I'm now going to put my hands on the steering wheel. Do you mind going into my glove compartment? Or do you want me to go into my glove compartment? Or can I please have your permission to go into my... I mean, like, the hoops, the the humiliating little hoops they have to jump through. I mean, literally, it's humiliating. I mean, all these things, I don't have to... and, And just the little compromises that you have to make with yourself every day. Oh... I'm about to go running through the neighborhood. Let me put on a t-shirt that shows that I'm a college-educated man. Oh, let me not wear a hoodie because Geraldo Rivera happens to think that people who wear hoodies are thugs. Well, I wear a hoodie every chance I have because I also don't feel like brushing my hair every time I go outside. And I don't think that I look like a thug and nobody thinks I am a thug. Right. And the same goes for my little blonde kid. Right. Right. Um, but if you're black, you think, uh, I can't wear a hoodie. Somebody might think I'm a thug, like Trayvon Martin. Or, um, I mean, I, I could go on and on. These little kind of compromises. Or, officer, I'm going to put my hands on the steering wheel now. I mean, I've never, every time I've been pulled over, I've been the grieved party. I'm like, what are you pulling me over for? Right. Same here. Um, <laughs> I could become indignant. Yeah. I could become indignant too. And sometimes it works, not as you get older, unfortunately. But um, but it's just it's just continuously humiliating. It's a life of petty humiliations, not of your own making. And 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 then they're supposed to be and their history is not taught. The crimes that happen to them are not taught. Which lessens the empathy of everybody. Of course. Of course. Civil War is not taught. It's taught perfunctorily, at least in my experience. And again, I went to a really good school, but taught perfunctorily as 
Yep. And then there was a war and it was based on all these tensions. It was like a historical march, right? There were all these tensions. And then this happened in, you know, 1848. And then this happened and, you know, so-and-so. All these tensions that, that led to the Civil War and they were over slavery. But nobody talks really about the slave experience. Maybe they do now. I'm going back to the 80s when I was learning all this stuff. But if, if it this didn't was, change. I don't know. Maybe that it wasn't that way in the 2000s. I mean, when you were in high school, it didn't it change. Didn't. Maybe it's changing now. But the point is, we're all adults. And it never changed for any of us. And you went to school down south. And, uh, you know, now we're supposed to basically sit there. And, and so people don't know. And African-Americans in this country are supposed to just grin and bear it and just be happy and polite and accept their lot in life. And if God forbid they get a little indignant about it, oh no, you can't get it. Whoa, here comes the angry black man. Are you kidding me? Right. What? I mean, I'm Jewish and I came from, you know, the former Soviet Union. Uh, you know, the Holocaust is very fresh in my mind, even though obviously I'm too young to have lived through it. Nobody's ever telling me not to get indignant about it. Nobody's ever telling me not to to, to, to be angry about it, but right. you consistently, consistently expect black people in this country to not be angry, to, to, you know, the onus is on them to be peaceful, even after they are shot, even after their people are shot. George Floyd was shot and killed, not shot. George Floyd was choked to death. Oh, but the people opposing that, you can't be angry. You got to have a peaceful protest, peaceful march. I'm not suggesting anybody should go burn down buildings. I'm not suggesting anybody needs to break, you know, storefronts at all. I'm, I'm opposed to that. But you're asking people for a lot. Right. To not just lose it entirely. So uh, anyway, all right. Now, Emily, I was having a great week. I actually was not even remotely thinking about what was making me salty. And now thanks to you, I've become like salty. That's the name. Salty politics. I know. Tell well, what's what, what? No, no, no. Now you got to come back to what's what's making you happy because I got to, you know, got to get in the happy note. All right. Well, I've been really enjoying watching Sopranos with my dad. Just seeing his reactions, like when they eat the cold cuts from the refrigerator is like a total Italian move. And it's totally something I grew up with. So it's just like little things like that and seeing him react where had this virus not happened, I wouldn't have these moments with him. So I really like that. Um, well, that's interesting because... I, um, as I said, I just finished watching it again with somebody who also had never really seen it. And, um, I, of course, being from New Jersey, completely appreciated the Sopranos because while I didn't grow up in that part of New Jersey and didn't really know many people in that universe, uh, I certainly know not people who are in the mob, but I certainly know so many people who are like that, um, from New Jersey and act that way, you know. They don't call it prosciutto. They call it prosciutto and gabagool and, you know, brujol and, you know, all these little, um, and also all the Jersey stuff, which I love. So, um, I still think the Sopranos, have you listened to the Sopranos podcast? I have just started. So, so did TV I. Falco is just on it. Oh, really? I, mean, I, haven't gotten, yes. I haven't gotten TV Falco yet. Um, but, uh, they do something on their podcast, which actually is a great idea, which we should do too. They haven't asked me anything thing, um, that they every week take a question from somebody who writes to them or tweets to them um, and ask me anything questions. So maybe we should start doing that. Let's try it for next week. If anybody wants to ask me or Emily anything at all, um, tweet us and uh, we'll pick a question and we will answer it. I love and, that. All right. Um, have a great week. You too. Until next week. Bye. 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 Bye.